You're listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Union Road Presbyterian Church. For more information, join us on Facebook or visit our website at unionroad.org.uk. Prayer is really a global phenomenon, isn't it? Especially when things aren't going particularly well. Last year, Google said it was one of their most searched terms, uh, praying in COVID or praying for COVID. And maybe a terrorist attack happens or a natural disaster happens, there'll be a hashtag or you'll be able to change your profile picture on Facebook that says you're praying for somewhere. And we have our Muslim friends in Makrafelti who have their month of prayer, their, their season where they try to get spiritually closer to their God. And it's very easy for us perhaps to say in, in different ways to different people, well, they aren't praying right. Either people are treating God like some sort of fairy in the sky or they're just not praying to the right God at all, to a false God. And it's really easy for us to come to that conclusion. But whenever we look at ourselves and the church, and the topic we're thinking about tonight is, are we a praying church? Dave has already mentioned some prayer warriors, and we have the pleasure of visiting some, and they're in every congregation, no matter where you go. But prayer is not the work of a few old saints. It's an activity for the church. And we, and the Comfort, and Union Road need to be a praying church. No one will deny that, sure they won't. No minister, elder, Sunday school teacher will never say that prayer is not important. But it's really, really difficult, isn't it? It's really hard. Jesus, when he drives out the market stalls and the people gathered in, in the marketplace, which was supposed to be the temple, he, what does he say? He says, my house shall be a house of prayer. The church, where God's people meet, is to be a place of prayer. And in Acts, as we did our big Bible overview, and one of the things that stands out, as you will read the book of Acts, is how the people were devoted to prayer. Prayer was one of the things that showed spiritual vitality in the early church. And it's important to be a praying church. Not just individuals praying, but a praying church. Jesus doesn't build uh, individuals. You know, we talked about living stones last week. Jesus doesn't convert us through his spirit and just dots us here and there, like you're emptying out a box of Lego and just scattered all on the floor, just a mess. No, Jesus builds us together. And we need to be praying together as God's people. It's a vital part of the Christian life, but as the life as a church. Christians, yes, we pray individually, but we pray together. And if we are struggling to pray individually on our own, together is a really good place to start as well. We have that time of coming together. We're all expected to have regular prayer time. But it's always irregular, isn't it? It's not always devoted. Sometimes we're tired and weary. It's not full of life and vitality. But a healthy church is a praying church. God uses prayer and God will answer prayer. See, the ministers in the Comfort and Union Road, down through the years, the pastors, elders, missionaries throughout the world, aren't sustained in ministry by the gifts that people give them the money they earn, the food they eat. No, they are sustained by God's Spirit and the answer of prayers of many people throughout the world. So as you look at Acts chapter 4 tonight, in these verses 23 to 31 or so, 
we need to look at what prayer is. What, what, how did they respond to the situation? And well, that's our first thing. What was the situation for prayer? In verse uh, 23, sorry, it says, when they were released. So what happened? Who's they? Well, if you turn back in your Bibles, and please follow along with me in chapter 3, we maybe know the kids' song, Peter and John went to pray. They met a lame man in the way. Okay? And this is what happens. They meet this lame man, and by the time they end speaking with him, he goes walking and leaping into the temple, praising God. And after that, Peter's able to speak to a crowd of people about Jesus and his resurrection. Okay, that's still really controversial. You can imagine in Jerusalem, just weeks after this was covered up or tried to be covered up by the chief priests and so on. And in the chapter 4, we're told that they are arrested. And the next day, they stand before them. And then in verse 8 of chapter 4, so they're standing before the rulers and the elders. In verse 8, they were told that Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit and speaks about Jesus. In verse 13, as Peter and John speak, they see their boldness. Are they able to stand firm with fearless confidence? And unable to say anything in opposition to them because they too saw that man who was lame from birth leap for joy. What happens in verses 17 to 22? This is what they say. In order that it may be spread no further among the people, let us warn them not to speak to anyone in his name. So they called them and charged them not to speak. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather to God, you must judge. We cannot speak but what we have seen and heard. And when they further threatened them, they let them go, deciding uh, not to punish them. Okay, so they were told, basically, the situation is this, Peter and John, and tell your others as well, be silent or be silenced. Okay, we've seen that meme over the time. That's what they're expecting them to do, to be silent. That's their situation before God. And whenever they come and return in verse 23, when they were released, they went to their friends. That's the situation. And whenever they hear this, so they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they heard it, what did they do? Well, we see very clearly the church's priority of prayer, don't we? The church has a very clear priority for prayer. You can imagine if someone came in like that. You could imagine some people bound to be disgusted at the situation, maybe anger boiling up inside them, what the chief priest said. Be quiet. Go away. We don't want to hear from you. Don't tell anybody else about Jesus. You can imagine people boiling up. They should have never said that up to you. They should never have done that. How arrogant do they think they are? They think they're all it. They're supposed to lead us spiritually and they're useless. You can imagine not being discussed or said, but no. What's the reaction? What's the reflex? It's not to get angry. They lifted their voices together and prayed. They didn't say, let's cause havoc. They said, let's get on our knees. Let's not rise up in anger. Let's fall on our faces. The reflex is prayer. Prayer was their first response. Why? Because it's a gift from their holy God. They prayed immediately when they, and they reacted in that way. To the church at this point, isn't it really small? Really? There's no influence on leaders or political leaders. They've got no sway. They've just been threatened. They are threatened constantly by the most powerful in society. And they're told to be quiet and to go away. But they appeal to a greater authority, don't they? To God. They're able to identify their weakness. And they go to the one who is strong. 
they knew they had grace through prayer in God. In Paul's letters, he constantly thanks the churches for praying for him, commends them to pray. In the book of Acts, they are constantly devoted to prayer. In other words, if we aren't a praying church, it means that we're not taking God seriously. As a church, we must turn to prayer from wondering if we have time for prayer, just thinking it's for older people. No, prayer for the church is to be the most natural reaction for God's people. Yes, we need to pray individually, but together. That's what happens here. Whenever the people meet together to pray, that is where you learn to pray too, isn't it? Hearing older saints pray. There's a place where we can say our amens together. When they heard it, they lifted their voices together. They were sharing their problems and their prayer requests, something that we do in our lives. And maybe there's some things we don't want to share with the world, but isn't it so much better to have someone pray or people pray for you and with you? See, our individual problems, because we talked about this morning, Ulster asked Jesus in my heart, because we're so individual Christians, we don't get the big picture. We forget that we are living stones being built up together. So what is my problem is the church's problem together. What is your problem, your heart's desire or struggle? It's my problem. It's all of our problems because we are one in Jesus. Coming together in prayer gives strength for the people here as they know they're not alone. Coming together gives us strength because we know we're not alone in this. We have other people praying for us, spiritually supporting us, walking us through this, and united in one voice here, they, they, before the one true God, they're seeking to honor him, and they're still seeking to proclaim Jesus. They don't face it on their own and go off in a corner and mope, but they face it together. The Bible encourages us to pray together Because as God's people pray together, our hearts are united. Whenever we pray together, we're more likely to encourage each other to pray. We are able to maintain or persist in prayer constantly. We know to follow up on prayer requests and how people are doing, whether it be missionaries or someone we've been praying for for years. And then together, we're able to remember and express thanksgiving to God in answering prayer. We need to stop putting God to the side put him in the center. It's God who lets us in, not us who lets God in. Many of us serve in so many different ways, and we are thankful, but we need to be committed to gathering together in prayer. We need to be committed to building God's kingdom through prayer rather than our own. In the church, there needs to be the priority of praying together. But what do they end up praying for? Well, what is the substance of their prayer? Now, the prayer lasts, what, verse 24 and a half through to verse 30. So it's really quite short in many ways, isn't it? And it's not as though they all spoke these words together at the same time. It's more likely that someone prayed this, and we don't know who, and it doesn't matter, and everyone at the end said their amens. Or when your people pray, they say, yes, Lord. The people are commenting as you pray. That's that united front togetherness. And that's what's going on here. 
And this is a model of prayer for us as we seek to be a praying people and a praying church. Because often, and I've been guilty of it, I'm sure you've been too, your um, prayer requests, or they suddenly just go to requests and go to prayer, isn't it? You get through your list of 1 to 20, as it were, and request, request, request to God. But we need to put the brakes on. We need to slow right down and just take a moment and marvel and be in awe of our holy God. Because as they pray, where do they begin? Where, where does the church begin as they pray? It's right there, isn't it? They begin with praise, reminding themselves who God is. Verse 24, sovereign Lord. This Greek word is used normally in relation to a master and its, and its and his slave or her slave. It's to denote that ultimate power and authority that a master has under a, or over a servant. Okay, so that's what they're saying to God. God, you are my master. You're a master and you have absolute power and authority over all things. And sometimes at the time it was used about Caesar as Lord. But God is our master. Who's the servants? Well, it's us. If you just glance your eye down, a couple of things here. Verse 25. So this is God is our master. What do they say with their lips? Well, David, verse 25, David, your servant. Verse 27, your holy servant, Jesus. Verse 29, look to your servants, in other words, themselves. Saying God is master. God was master of David. God was master of Jesus when he was on earth. He had to submit to the will of the Father and now they're saying, look, you are my master. Of all the things of life, they are saying, God, you are sovereign, including the situation they find themselves in. And that is often hard to, uh, to say and to understand. They are saying, everything depends on you, God. We are throwing ourselves at our master. The master who is the creator, the one who created the heavens and the earth, the sea and everything in them. You are this great creator, God, who we have the pleasure of having access to through your son, Jesus. That is what it is. What else? So we have this praise, the sovereign Lord. And well, then they use scripture, don't they? As you said through your servant, David... Why did the Gentiles rage? Why, why does this Psalm 2 come to their minds? Well, the early church had been studying the Scriptures, the Old Testament's all they had. And when it came to praying, they ended up reflecting the Scriptures. They used Scripture to ignite their prayer life. So there's another suggestion if you're struggling. Read God's Word and respond to it. Scripture guided them in their prayers. And as they remembered Psalm 2... Was it, why, why did the Gentiles rage? The people's plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. Why do they cook that? Well, they're saying that is just what's happened. That's what we've just seen the last couple of months. They had seen Jesus nailed to the cross. They had seen people plotting against him. And that's what verse 27 is almost explaining about Herod and Pontius Pilate. They were the authorities. All the peoples were against Jesus. They quote scripture. They see God in it all, that God was able to foretell this. Again, just shows that God is the sovereign Lord. God's word is the Bible to us. 
So Scripture is God's Word to us, and prayer is our talking to God. And that's what they're doing here. They're taking God's Word, Psalm 2, and responding to it. David started off chatting about the line of duty, and it has been many a conversation, especially, it seems, in my age group. Um, most of my friends have been watching it. And while I haven't been, uh, well, and I take a wee kind of pleasure out of not watching things that everyone else is watching, but anyway, if they tell of a conversation, what just happened, and they're chatting about everything that's going on, and I butt in and just talk about something completely different and random, they're like, David, what are you on? Like, what are you chatting about? Because I don't understand anything that's going on. And well, have you ever been a part of a conversation like that? Maybe in a group and someone else steps in something, and you're like, what are you talking about? We've all been there. That's why we need to pray and respond to God's word. You just can't have a random prayer in the sky without reflecting on God's word. That's why praying for cities, nations, whatever it is that everyone flocks onto in social media is kind of pointless. They're not praying through Jesus. See, using Scripture makes our prayers more biblical, more God-honoring. Whenever we pray in light of Scripture, we pray better. Instead of sometimes we pray and we use Scripture to manipulate our prayers. So we might say, Lord, this is what I desire in my heart. Ask and it shall be given to you. Lord, I ask, now give. Badly, badly taken out of context. We need to prayerfully read Scripture and respond to it. Remembering portions of Scripture in our mind helps us in difficult situations. The words of the Bible need to be stored up in our hearts so when difficulties come, we can respond and pray in crisis. You know, in difficulties, we might remember the Lord's my rock and my salvation, and we pray out of that. The prayer contains praise. It contains Scripture, and they respond to God's Word. And then, really, again, they pray about the situation itself. So, verse, the Psalm 2 is about what's happened. Their people are against them. Verse 27, again, that's the, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were against Jesus, your anointed. And then, in verse 28, they asked to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. They're really saying, Lord, we know what's going on. You know what's going on. We've prayed in light of Scripture, but we recognize it's all under your control. It's all under your hand. God not only knows the future, but he ordains it. He predestined Jesus to death on the cross. It was no accident. Yes, the nations plotted in vain, but what the enemy meant for evil, God meant for good. From the beginning of time, God had determined his son Jesus to die on the cross for my sin and for your sin to redeem a people for himself, a people that he would give access to in prayer to his Father in heaven. God chose Jesus to be our sacrifice because he's the only one who could be our sacrifice. God's purpose, they're saying in all of this, well, it's all for your good, for your plan, Lord. God is never surprised by the events of this world or in our lives. What does that mean? Well, it means that we can pray mindful of that. We can be confident in the truth that God is sovereign. Whenever a sovereign Lord is up against the people of this world, there's only one winner, isn't there? 
It's God who is the ultimate authority. He is the king and ruler. And God being sovereign, it really needs to be an anchor for us. Because God being sovereign means, although we will fail at prayer, our sins are forgiven. Although we fail at so many things in this life, God is sovereign. Jesus has died for our sins already. The battle is won. God's sovereign. God being sovereign needs to be an anchor for us in every part of our lives. In our sickness and in our success, God is sovereign. In our triumph, our tragedy, and our trouble, God is sovereign. Is God bigger and more powerful than the chief priests here? Yeah. Is God bigger and more powerful than Caesar? Yes. Is God bigger and more powerful than you fill in the blank? Yes is the answer. It comforts us to know God in times of trouble is sovereign. Nothing happens outside of his rule and reign. Our Father in heaven truly works things together for our eternal good. And part of his sovereign plan is to use the prayers of weak saints like us. Why? Because as we've heard, Jesus and the Spirit is constantly interceding on our behalf and praying for us. That alleviates all the burden that we can just come and pray. We can just lift up our voices. And the final part of their prayer is their petition eventually, or their requests. And I want you to notice, notice what they didn't pray for, okay? Verse um, 29 or 30. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand, okay? What do they not pray? They do not say, Lord, get rid of the chief priests. Lord, help us to do this well. Lord, help us to not ruffle any feathers. Lord, help us to live comfortable, safe lives away from confrontation, confrontation and punishment. They don't pray that. Yes, there's appropriate times for wisdom, protection, favor with authorities, but here their initial response is to leave the, the moral judgment to God. They say, God, look at what they're doing. Look at what they're doing, but help us continue to speak in boldness. Lord, do your plan, but let us be bold. That is what they pray for. They pray for boldness. They value success of the gospel as it were. They value mission much more than their physical comfort. They value mission more than comfort. They value prayer more than comfort. Church prayed for boldness and perseverance rather than having it easy. Isn't that challenging? Pray for boldness rather than having an easy conversation with a friend or hoping they'd just come around without us tackling them or speaking to them. Often we pray, Father, alleviate this from me. Make it easy. Give me favor in, in people's eyes. In other words, Lord, fix everyone else and don't look about me for boldness. That's really what we pray, isn't it? I've done it. We pray for boldness. And what else do they pray for? Well, they pray that God would show us power. I've already seen that briefly as we thought about the lame man uh, being miraculously healed, that God was able to restore him 
God was able to show his power so that his name would be glorified. They're praying that, Lord, please, whether it be three miracles and what it was a really special time for the church, would you open people's hearts to your son, Jesus? And what is all the response to this praying? How does God respond? It's quite remarkable, isn't it? And when they prayed, the place in which they gathered together was shaken, and they were filled together with the Spirit. The place shook. When God answers prayer and hears prayer, He really answers it. The response of God allowed them, the consequence of the place being shaken, being filled with the Spirit, allowed them to speak with boldness. In other words, it's God's response which leads us to our response. It's God that fills us to do His work. It's God that sent the second Pentecost that it allowed them to speak with boldness. God filled them. He shook them. Allowed them to speak with boldness. Prayer is really difficult. Prayer is hard. God is sovereign. Here they are totally saturated in Scripture. They have a zeal and compassion for evangelism, and their prayer from the very offset shows an utter dependence on God, doesn't it? Sovereign Lord. Our praying together at times or on our own, sometimes, if we're being honest, doesn't it feel fruitless and insignificant? But as we've been going through Revelation, in Revelation 8, John opens the curtain for us to show all our prayers mingled with the fire of God coming down to earth with a great consequences. Our prayers are never fruitless. Our prayers are never insignificant and never in vain. We need to be a praying church. Sinclair Ferguson has a great line in one of his books, which is this. Since we need to be a praying church, the quickest way to get into the heart of a church is to gather when it turns to prayer. A praying church is what the early church was. A praying church is all that we want to be. So what is the heart of La Comfort? What is the heart of Union Road? Are we a praying church? Yeah, there's nothing harder than to be a prayerer. <laughs> there's nothing harder than being a praying church. There's also nothing more important than being a praying church. Nothing more powerful than a praying church because we pray to who? Not a fairy in the sky. Not just someone out there who we don't really know who we're praying to. No, we pray to a holy, sovereign Lord. To finish, one commentator has this great line. When we gaze at our sovereign God, when we gaze at our God, whenever we look to our Jesus, we need only glance at our problems. We just need to fix our eyes on Jesus. Everything else is insignificant. Why? Because the sovereign Lord sent his son Jesus. He's constantly interceding for us, for our sin. We're only here for a short time, and one day we'll have full access, and we'll be able to see the fruit of our prayers. A praying church is a hard thing to do, but we will be blessed as a praying church. Why? 
because God blesses us spiritually through his word and through prayer. Thank you.